I was uh, going to tell Scott, thank you for his graciousness and letting me have class again. But now that he's made fun of me, I, I guess I'm not going to say that. I'm just, just glad that I get to teach again regardless. So uh, no, I uh, didn't get as far as I wanted to uh, last week. And so I am glad for a chance to, to come back to a really important topic and uh, to kind of reiterate what we started with uh, last week. Our, our goal really is to, uh, is to help when it comes to how a Christian relates to the Old Testament law. That's what we're uh, trying to do. I'm not trying to be uh, confusing or frustrating. We're trying to be helpful because uh, this is, a, it is an important issue and there are lots of Christian people with various perspectives on uh, the Old Testament law and how we, how we relate to it. Uh, and so secondly, we said as much as possible, uh, we want scripture to determine how we understand this topic. So more than this just being a, a theological or, or an idea study, um, we want to we wanna look at specific verses that influence how we look at the Old Testament law and deal with those verses uh, themselves. So we're going to do a little bit more of that uh, today. Uh, as we look at, as we consider specific uh, passages. So uh, remember that when I say uh, the law, we're talking specifically about the law of Moses. Uh, the first five books of the Bible is what we're uh, considering. And here was our big idea from last week. Uh, God's good, holy, and righteous law given in the first five books of the Old Testament was fulfilled by Christ and is no, lo no longer binding on us today. It is God-breathed and profitable necessary for us to understand God in his world. All right, I know, I know that's a mouthful, um, but that's where we're uh, coming back to again, that God's law is holy, good, and righteous, um, but it was fulfilled by Christ and is no longer binding on us, and yet it is God-breathed uh, and it's profitable. In fact, it is necessary for us to understand God and his world. Okay, so uh, last week we considered, um, I asked you as, you as you thought about how you relate to the Old Testament law, which is really what we're after, right? How do you relate to the Old Testament law. This is, not a, this is not a theoretical discussion. This is a very, this is an eminently practical one. You have five books of your Old Testament uh, that have the Mosaic law in them. How do you connect uh, to this Mosaic law? Um, I encourage you to consider uh, that the Mosaic law, I think the best way to understand it is that it's a unity. Uh, it's one. Uh, and so even as Scott mentioned, um, I don't think the best way to break up the Mosaic law is into these three different um, components. Um, gave a variety of, of reasons that um, thought that last week, um, urged you to consider the purpose of the Mosaic law. Why is this law in our Bibles, right? If we're going to understand how we relate to it, we need to know what was this law here for. Uh, so we talked about there was a, there was a national function um, for the nation of Israel. There was a covenantal function. Um, there was a teaching function. There's even a condemning function in the law, right? And all of these help us understand how we're supposed to relate to the Old Testament law. Um, I encourage you to consider the time of the Mosaic law. Uh, there was a time the Mosaic law did not exist. Uh, and then I'm also convinced there's a time when the Mosaic covenant came to an end as law code, right? Um, and part of that argument was found in that Paul continually argues that the Mosaic law is no longer binding on Christians. Um, over and over again, he says that the law had served a purpose, that purpose has come to an end, and we are no longer under the law. If you remember Romans 6, in the same way that a woman whose husband dies is no longer under the law to keep that covenant to her husband, in the same way we are no longer under law, we have died to the law. We are no longer under the letter, but in the new life of the Spirit. Um, and Paul himself says that I am no longer myself under the law. Okay? Um, so, we uh, arrive today um, at another consideration when it comes to how we relate to the Old Testament law, um, and that is I, that I hope you'll consider the weakness of the Mosaic law. Consider the weakness of the Mosaic law. Um, we're going to go to Romans chapter number 8, so if you want to head there. What is it that makes the Mosaic law weak? How can we, how can we say that about something that is good, holy, and righteous, how can we say that it has some kind of weakness in it? And the answer is in, in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Which is a distinction between those who are either under the law or who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, what? weakened and how was the law weakened the law was weakened by the flesh all right 
The law was weakened by the flesh, and it could not do. Um, what, what could the law, weakened by the flesh, not do? Well, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh so that, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, the law could never fulfill God's righteous requirement in us because of the weakness of what? Of the flesh. So when we say the weakness of the law, we're actually not saying that there was a problem with the law, right? The problem is with us. The problem is with our flesh. And so the law comes in. Paul said, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have even known what sin was. But as soon as I know what it is to do not covet, then what do I want to do? I want to covet, right? So the law had a weakness in it, and and the weakness was because of our sinful flesh. All right, we're going to flip over to Hebrews 7, which is another important passage for you to consider. Um, When we think about what the law could not do, what the law was unable to do, in fact, what the law was never uh, designed to do, uh, Hebrews 7 is another one of those important passages, okay? Um, Hebrews 7, uh, you can even look at at verse number 11, because again, all throughout Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting how Jesus is better than all these things. He's he's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He also has a better priesthood, right? And in verse number 11, a really interesting comment. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Isn't that that interesting? It it, it says that if perfection, if we had been able to get that through the Levitical priesthood, we wouldn't have needed any other priest. Right? There's something that even in the Levitical priesthood, which is where we even have that under the law, right? Levitical priesthood is Mosaic law. If we'd been able to have perfection there, we wouldn't have needed another priest. So when we talk about the weakness of the law, um, we're not saying that there was something wrong with the, with the law in that it is good and holy and righteous, and yet it is not able to fully accomplish God's purpose of redemption. Right? Otherwise, the law we would still be under it if it, could, if it could make us perfect. If it could do everything that God wanted done, then we wouldn't need any further law. We wouldn't need to change the Levitical priesthood, for instance. But that has all been changed now, right? Uh, verse number 18, if you skip just a little bit further down in Hebrews 7. It says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. There's that word again, right? Uh, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse number 19, for the law, what? The law made nothing perfect, okay? The the law does not have the ability to make anything perfect. So that that helps us as New Testament Christians as we think about the law, that there's something the law cannot do. The law cannot cause us to be perfect. It can't make anything perfect, right? That's not its purpose. That's not its function. So when you consider how you relate to the law, uh, the law is not something that's designed to make anyone or anything perfect. Um, But he goes on to say uh, in verse number 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. If the law wasn't able to make us perfect, then what does the law actually do to people in relationship to God? The law? Does the law draw us closer? That's right. The law pushes us away from God. The law actually bars us, right? We have a better hope because we're able to draw near to God. Remember, remembering from last week, even the description of when Jesus is crucified and that veil is, is ripped in half from top to bottom. We now have access to God. The law actually bars people from relationship with God. We have a better hope now because we can draw near to God because the law stands as condemnation to us, all right? Not as access to God, but actually in barring us from God. That's, the, that's what law does. All right, so when I say weakness of the law, repeating what Hebrews said, um, repeating what Paul said in Romans, and the problem is that our flesh keeps us from obeying God's law and therefore having relationship with him, okay? So um, when you think about the weakness of the Mosaic law, you can also consider um, that the law was temporary. It is temporary. Um, uh, you can flip over to Romans 6. I know we, were, I know we spent some time there uh, last week. But there is a, um, in one sense, uh, there is something that is temporary about the law. Not that it stops to exist, right? Um, God's law continues to be something we need to know. continues to be something that um, we have in Scripture, which is eternal. 
Um, but when it, when it comes to um, living underneath this as law code, there was, a, there was something temporary about it, right? Because in Romans 6, uh, verse number 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Right? And those are probably verses you're familiar with. I'm not supposed to let death reign in me. Um, my body's supposed to be used for, for righteousness. Um, but there's a reason that sin doesn't have dominion over you, right? And this is really important when we think about the Old Testament. Why does sin not have dominion over you? Paul says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since what? You're not under law, right? Since you are not under law, but you are under grace. That's why sin doesn't have dominion over you any longer, right? Because the law said you must, you must meet these standards. And, our, and in our flesh, we went, either I, there's no way we can meet those standards. That's impossible. The law brings condemnation. It has dominion over you, right? But what we have now is grace, right? So you say, oh, good. That means not under law. That means we do whatever we want, right? Well, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? So don't miss this. Just because uh, Paul says, you're, sh is that what we should think? Well, we can just sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means, right? Paul's horrified at the thought that we would just do whatever we want. Just like I'm horrified at the thought that we should just sin because we're under grace. No, uh, we, we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more later. But the fact that we are now under grace is not an excuse for us to sin, Right? Uh, in, in fact, we, we now have, for the, for the first time, we have the freedom to not sin because we're no longer under the dominion of the law and, and the flesh. We now have the ability to do what is right, right? So this is hugely encouraging. And, and this whole conversation about the, the Christian and the Old Testament law, I hope you've noticed uh, that there's multiple gospel overtones all throughout this conversation. So how you understand the Old Testament law has a lot to do with how you understand the gospel and your salvation. These are very closely connected, okay? So um, there, was a, there was a temporariness in that we are no longer under the law um, that we see here in, in Romans 6. Uh, Romans 10.4, uh, that's just a little bit further, so you can flip over there. And then we're going to go look at one other um, key passage just on, on this point. But Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right. There, there's a time frame on the Mosaic law as something that we live under. All right. Flip over to Galatians, um, uh, Galatians 3 specifically. And really the entire book of Galatians, uh, it, even as if you're continuing to work through in your own mind, how do I relate to the law? How do I think about even the concept that we're not under law? Um, Galatians would be a really good book for you to, to do more study in because Galatians is filled um, with a lot of description of how um, how the Christian connects to law. Um, because there was a whole group of people, they were trying to tell the Galatians uh, in order to be saved, they needed to live under law. And we see Paul's incredibly strong reaction uh, to that kind of teaching. All right, uh, but uh, Galatians 3, uh, we'll look specifically in, uh, in verse number uh, 19. Well, if you want to look at the end of chapter 2, and there's just so much, I can't I'm going to start teaching the book of Galatians, so sorry, Scott. It's, got, it's actually like, I need 13 more weeks. Um, no, but uh, at the end of Galatians, uh, chapter number 2, uh, in verse 18, it says, um, or verse 19, rather, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then what? What is Paul's argument here at the end of chapter 2? Yeah, why does Christ, if you can be righteous through the law, then why does Jesus even die? It's, that's pointless if you can get your righteousness through the law, right? The law doesn't bring us righteousness. So we're talking about what is the, what is, what is the weakness of the law? The law can't bring you righteousness. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't need to die, okay? Uh, so Galatians 3, uh, verse number uh, 10 says, all who rely on works of the law are what? You're under a curse, right? It is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, right? There's another little plug for the laws of unity, right? It doesn't say by some of the things in the law, right? By all things written in the book of the law, all right? It is evident that no one is justified by God for the law because the righteous live by faith, 
Okay, so uh, if you rely on the works of the law, you're actually under a curse and not under, not under a blessing. Okay, verse number 19, he asked this question, why then the law? It was, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The offspring that should come to whom the promise had been made is? Okay, so um, in verse number 21, he, he's going to ask a, a further question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so he's painting this picture that the law came and it imprisoned people in their flesh. They couldn't keep this, um, but it was keeping them until Jesus came. Remember what I'm saying? There's, there's a temporary nature to the law. Once Christ comes... He says in verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law and we were imprisoned, what? Until the coming faith be revealed, right? Do you see, these are time kind of words, until this happens. So then he says, verse 24, back then the law was our guardian, when? How, how long was the law our guardian? Until Christ came, all right? These are time kind of words. Until Christ came, the law was a guardian. But what happens now? Well, now he says... We are no longer under a guardian. What is he saying? We're no longer under this law. This law was the guardian. We're not under it anymore because in Christ Jesus, we're all sons of God through faith. Okay. So again, I, ho I hope that you're seeing that there is this, there's this time frame um, of the law. Uh, one more uh, passage in Galatians 5, just for you to see. Uh, Galatians 5, 18. You say, how long are we under the law? Well, we're under the law until Christ... Christ came, um, what about now? Verse number 18, if you are led by the Spirit, what? You're not under the law, right? So uh, until Christ comes, people were under the law. Until you're led by the Spirit, right? They were under the law, but now these things have changed, all right? Um, so uh, one, one other note in Galatians 5, just, just, because, we're, just because we're here, um, Paul is arguing against those who would say you have to have mosaic circumcision in, in order to be saved. Um, and back in verse number two, he says, um, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to do what? To keep the whole law, right? Because I think what Paul continually argues is that if you want to have one piece of the law, what? You've got to have the whole thing. Right? Again, you, you can't pick and choose. Uh, Paul's telling these Judaizers, if you want circumcision, you want to live underneath Mosaic law, then you've got to live under the whole entire system. Okay? So again, this is an exegetical reason that I'm saying um, that I, I do not personally care for the threefold division of the law because, I, again, I, I don't think it quite matches what Paul's saying here in a similar way that James would say if you... Uh, if you keep the whole law and yet offend at one point, you're guilty of all. I think the law is a, is a, is a whole, the, mo the Mosaic law. Okay, so um, I know we're still talking about that, but. The, the word guardian, explain that just a little bit. Yeah, so that was a, that was a concept uh, within, um, probably within uh, Roman culture of um, the guardian would be like the teacher of the child. So in the parent's place, this guardian um, would perform all the functions of education and um, even physical training, and, and the law is that guardian, right? Um, but that, that guardianship wasn't true sonship, right? So until the point came that that child, that particularly a male child, officially became son, heir, etc., then you no longer need this guardian, right? So the guardian was for children, um, and so that's, it's an object lesson, really, um, of what the law is until Christ comes. And now we are fully heirs, we're, we're fully sons. Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, the the we're considering the 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 weakness or the temporary nature of of the Mosaic law. Um, we've made this point already numerous times, so I I, I won't belabor it. But the the law is um, unable to free us. Um, Acts thirteen thirty nine is something you can look at. Um, Philippians three nine tells us that by the law no one will be justified. Right? The law doesn't bring justification. Uh, Hebrews ten one. That's something that maybe you can flip over and and look at. Uh, Hebrews ten one. <laughs> so Hebrews 10 1 
for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, it's, it's kind of that same argument. The law was just a shadow. It was a pointer to the good things that were to come. Um, and, and it's not able, even by its sacrificial system, the sacrificial system of Moses was not able to make perfect uh, those, who, those who drew near. Okay, so when I say the weakness of the law, don't think that I'm saying that it's not good, holy, or righteous. I'm just pointing out what the New Testament points out in that the law is unable to do um, and, wasn't, and wasn't designed to do. Okay, uh, lastly, the law is impossible to keep. Um, I mentioned Acts 15 uh, last week where um, Peter stands before the Jerusalem Council and he says, why are we trying to put these Gentiles under a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear? Right, the law was impossible uh, to keep. Uh, we're, you're probably still in Hebrews, so even if you just wanted to see that in Hebrews 7, uh, 19. Uh, we already talked about that, actually, about the law not being able to make anything, anything perfect. Okay, so um, I wanted to, and I'm glad we even stopped where we did last week, because I didn't want to leave you thinking about the um, temporary weakness of the law without also reiterating um, the flip side, which is you should consider the goodness of the Mosaic law. Okay, so um, as we strive for letting scripture, I, I want to say balance, but biblical is really a better word, right? We want to be biblical when we think about the law. There is a goodness to the Mosaic law that we need to consider. So you go to Romans 7. So lest you, uh, in our attempt to understand these New Testament passages, unless you think like Scott said that we're now saying, good news, you can erase Genesis through Deuteronomy out of your Bibles. Um, we, we can't do that, and we shouldn't do that, because God's law is holy and righteous and good. All right, so uh, Romans 7, uh, verse number, verse number uh, 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is what? The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good, all right? So as we think as Christians about the Old Testament law, if, if we begin to think about the Old Testament law as in, well, that law was bad, or we don't like that law, or, or, or um, th then you're thinking something that no New Testament writer thought about the Old Testament law, right? This Old Testament law, despite the fact um, that it had a limited purpose and a limited scope, it is still God's perfect revelation, right? It is holy, and it is righteous, and, and it is good. Uh, in fact, uh, the, it has a remarkable ability. In 1 Timothy uh, 1.8, you can, you can see uh, other ways that Paul thought and, and approached the law. 1 Timothy 1.8, so he says it's holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. 1 Timothy 1.8, he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, right? The, the law is something that is good. It's not, it's not bad. So again, whatever else you heard me say this week and what you heard me say last week, I'm not saying that something is wrong with the law or that it's bad. It's not bad. It is good, and it is good for us. We're going to talk about how we uh, even get to the point of, of understanding it. Um, but 2 Timothy 3, um, right before we get to these really famous verses um, about all Scripture being breathed out by God, um, what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, I want you to continue in what you learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And now from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, right? He's talking about Old Testament, which are able to make you what? Wise for salvation. But, but how does it make you wise for salvation? Well, it's only through faith in Christ Jesus. Because what the law says is you can't be saved. You, God's going to give you a regulation and you're going to insist that you're going to break it. That's what the law reveals. The law reveals that when you tell your six-year-old you cannot have a cookie until after dessert, uh, after supper, then your six-year-old is what? He's going to want that cookie now, right? And we all experience that as grown-ups. It's no longer a cookie, but God says, thou shalt not, and our hearts go, I want, right? So um, what... What the law does in its condemnation of us in saying that your flesh is weak and that you're a sinner is that it also announces that you need a rescuer. Because the law says you are not going to be able to perform. In fact, you're going to do the opposite. The law says don't, you're going to go do. The law says do this, and you go, I don't want to do that. Right? So what you need is somebody that can follow the law's requirements. So the law points you to have faith in Jesus because you can't have faith in yourself. 
You can't have faith in your flesh. Your flesh will fail you. Your flesh will do what God says not to do. So you need somebody else to do righteousness on your behalf. The law points you to Jesus. Okay? It says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I know that um, we hear that and um, I don't know. When you hear all scripture, does Genesis through Deuteronomy, is that what pops into your mind first? It may not be, but that's, this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about, I think, by extension, all of the New Testament scripture as well. But he's reminding Timothy of what Timothy had learned from a childhood, which would have been the Old Testament scriptures. And what he says about these Old Testament scriptures, which certainly includes the Mosaic law, that all of that is breathed out by God. And it is all profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Okay, so God's good, holy, and righteous law is profitable for us. The New Testament writers greatly respected the law. Without the law, we would have no idea what it even meant to be God's people. Right, as in the Jewish nation, we want to understand what it is to be a Jew. If we didn't have the Mosaic law, there would be no such thing because of the Mosaic covenant, right? Um, the, the law shows the character of God. The law shows the sinfulness of man. And those are both good things to be shown, right? It's good to see who God is. And it's good to see that we're sinners. So there's a goodness to that law, right? Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 17. Um, and, and so that brings a goodness to the law. Jesus didn't say the law is something to be ignored. Jesus said the law is something. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, all right? So there's something good about the law. He wasn't opposed to the law. He was bringing it to its full fruition. Okay. Um, when you think about law, um, I, I think we also should consider the existence of a new law. All right. Um, because what I've said is we're not underneath Mosaic law, but there is a new law. Um, there are some that have charged that, um, that someone that thinks like I do is uh, antinomian or the idea of against law. All right. So, um, I don't want to get too far, uh, too far afield, but a dispensationalist, that, so that would be me. If, if you're somebody who thinks that uh, the church began at the day of Pentecost and that the church is different than Israel, then that puts you in this dispensational camp, all right? So that's me. I think the church started in Acts 2, and that's what our church teaches, right? So I'm in this camp of dispensationalism. There are some that teach that um, what that means is that I'm against law, right? That I'm, I'm antinomian. In fact, um, there's this uh, one man, he wrote a book called Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth. How's that for a nice gentle um, critique of my position? Uh, so John Gerstner, he said, I have shown at length that dispensationalism is antinomian. To depart from antinomianism is to depart from dispensationalism, right? So he's pretty clear if uh, antinomian being against law, thinking that there is no law, thinking that we can be free of law, all right? Uh, the reason that that's not a true and valid criticism uh, is that we are not free from any law. We're just free from the Mosaic law. We are under a new law. Therefore, I am not an antinomian and dispensationalists are not. Okay? Um, instead of believers standing under Mosaic law code, we stand underneath a new covenant law. We stand underneath the lordship of Christ and the New Testament is full of commands against sin. Right? So what I'm saying is not good news, you don't have to obey God, God's moral prescriptions or God's law in the general sense. Right? I haven't said that at any point. We've been talking about Mosaic law. Right? Um, but again, uh, Romans 6, uh, back to the Romans 6 uh, principle, uh, should we sin because we are under grace? By, by no means. Right? Uh, Romans, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what we said in verse 15. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By, by no means. The New Testament is full of commands against sin. Christians live under the demands of the Spirit, and the Spirit administers the law of Christ. Uh, Galatians 6, 2, we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and, there, and thereby fulfill the law, what? The law of Christ, right? You are under obligation to bear one another's burdens, and that's not an option for you to choose whether you want to obey or disobey. That's God's law of Christ for you, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those who are without law, I became as without law. They're not being without the law of God. This is, I feel like this is a Pauline, and, and I hope this is my position and your position. It's not that we are without law. He says, not being without the law of God, but under what? He says, under the law of Christ. Right? So we're not free of God's law just because we are free of the Mosaic law. All right? And that's a point that I hope you can see a distinction. Just because we're not under the Mosaic law doesn't mean we're free from the law of God. Okay, all right. Um, James describes it in James 2 as the royal law. 
Where do we find this law of Christ? Where do we find this royal law? Well, you can find it in the New Testament, right? Within the Great Commission, Jesus sent us to, to do what in the Great Commission? Make disciples. And what are we, what are, how, how does that happen? Okay, so we make this, we're, we're baptizing them, we make them disciples. So we're making disciples and we're teaching them what? To obey all that I commanded you, right? There's not, we don't have liberation from free of God's commands. You're actually under obligation to do God's commands. In fact, Christ commissioned you and he commissioned me to go and, and to teach people what it is to obey his commands. In fact, to obey all of his commands, right? So he doesn't just say, teach them my commands, teach them to obey my commands, right? We're supposed to learn how to live underneath the law of Christ, right? Um, within the New Testament, it is remarkable that the New Testament reestablishes nine of the Ten Commandments uh, from the Mosaic Law Code. And yet at the same time, the New Testament significantly changes the Mosaic Law. For instance, the New Testament says there's no longer a Sabbath. Romans 14.5, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. I think that's connected to Sabbath. Colossians 2.16 makes it explicitly clear. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new man or a Sabbath day. Right? You are not under obligation to keep Sabbath. And you all agree with that, I assume, uh, because I assume you're all doing work and doing a bunch of other things yesterday. I don't know of any Sabbatarians uh, in our church. Uh, we, we are not under Sabbath any longer, and that's not because we chose out. We want, we want to have Saturdays, right? It's, it's, what, it's connected to what we're told in our New Testament, that we're now free from this law um, and that we're no longer under the bondage even of a Sabbath. There's no more dietary code, right? Uh, we talked about that um, last time, um, Peter being told, rise, kill, and eat. Um, there's, no, there's no more sacrificial system like there was in the Mosaic Law. So uh, Hebrews 10 um, I'm starting to run out of time again, so I'll just let you uh, look at that yourself. But Jesus came and he completed the sacrificial system. We're no longer under a sacrificial system like there was in the Mosaic Law. That's why you didn't bring a sheep or a goat to a worship service yesterday, because we're no longer under the sacrificial system. Right? So there, there are significant changes to the, to, uh, to the Old Testament law system, and yet we are still under the law of God. So how do we get to applying the law? What what? What is, let's try to bring it all together. I'm reading my Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What am I supposed to do with this stuff and, and how? Okay, because all this has not been to sideline the law, but rather help you as you think about how you relate to the law, because this is God's word to us. Okay, uh, number one, I want to encourage you to apply this to your knowledge of God's character. Apply the law to your knowledge of the character of God. Right? You can see God's holiness and its pervasive demand in all of life by reading Genesis through Deuteronomy. You, you can discover that God set up an entire system that touched everything about Israelite life. When, when God thinks about holiness, he doesn't isolate it into just one compartment, right? And so you can see his, his character all throughout the law, all right? And the reality is that God has not changed just because the application of the law has, okay? You, you see what I'm saying? Like the character of God isn't different just because the Mosaic law is no longer enforced. The character behind these laws is absolutely still there. Okay? Um, parents, uh, you probably change some of your laws to your kids, right? Uh, you probably don't have the same bedtime for your 15-year-old than you do for your 4-year-old, right? You've changed the application of your law. And yet you still want your kids to learn self-control and to have enough rest and all the things that made you create the bedtime law in the first place. Your, your character is unchanged. I love my kids and I want the best thing for them, but you changed one of your rules, right? You changed one of your law. That doesn't make you fickle and it didn't change your character. You just adjusted, right, to, to their age. Um, but the character behind it is still the same. I love you and I want what's best for you, right? God's character hasn't changed just because we are no longer under Mosaic law code. Okay, um, apply this to your knowledge, apply the law to your knowledge of God's character. Secondly, apply the law to your understanding of Christ's righteousness. Because when you read the law thoughtfully, you, it's impossible to come away with anything other than there's just no way I could ever do this. Like the law is just this mega, megaphone shouting, you could never do this. But Jesus did. Not only could he, he did. 
Right? That's how complete Jesus' righteousness is, that he could fully and entirely obey the law of God, including all of the heart demands that were within the law that the Jewish people didn't even seem to come close to considering the, the demands, not just of the, of the words that are written down, but what it required of someone's heart and their character. Jesus, Jesus could fulfill the entire law. So when you read the Old Testament law, you should be amazed at how righteous Jesus Christ is. And his righteousness can be yours. And so you can be amazed that you can have the same righteousness. And that means that you can apply the law to your joy in the gospel, right? You should be so grateful this morning that you live under grace and not under law, right? You should be so glad that you're sitting here today and you are underneath the grace of God and not under the condemnation of the law. You've been freed from the law's um, penalties. You've been freed from the law's punishments. Uh, you've been free from the demands of the law that you could never keep. So there's a joy that should be in that, okay? Um, thirdly, is that three, four, whatever we're on, uh, you should be looking for Christ in the Old Testament law, right? The Old Testament law is not an end to itself. It's pointing elsewhere. It's pointing to Jesus, right? So the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking with his disciples, uh, and and they're just, they're trying to figure out what happened on this first resurrection day. And he says, you fools and slow to heart. Why didn't you believe all that was written about me? And beginning with where? Moses and the prophets. He explained all the things that were pointing to him. Okay. So you can go to the law and you can look for Jesus. Okay. So um, two other encouragements and then I have a couple points before um, we ask a a few last questions. Uh, I want to encourage you to believe 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, even when you're reading Leviticus 20 and you're having a rough time, uh, you should believe 2 Timothy 3.16. This is scripture and it is profitable for me. You should believe it, even when it's hard for you to directly connect. So work at believing that all the Old Testament law is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction, righteousness. Even if you're having a hard time getting there, you can believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true. All right. And so that leads to my final encouragement, which is uh, we should study, study, study and think, think, think. OK, um, I hope these two weeks have not been um, hope they haven't been um, frustrating or confusing. I hope it's been provoking in a sense. Um, but we, we cannot just uh, act as if Genesis through Deuteronomy is some foreign territory that doesn't belong to us as New Testament Christians uh, or shy away from it because it's scary. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here and you're listening to Scott teach Mosaic Law, teach Exodus week in and week out. And I'm glad because as Christians, we should be people who are studying, studying, studying and thinking, thinking, thinking. And, and it takes work to do that when you consider how you relate to the Old Testament law. And I know it does, but that's worth the effort. Okay. All right. A um, couple of last things when it comes to application. Uh, if, it, if it helps, when you, when you think about the Old Testament, the, Mo- the Mosaic Law, uh, if this helps you when you think about a- applying it, um, think about the law in the Garden of Eden. All right, what was the law in the Garden of Eden? Okay, don't eat the fruit. All right, are we still under that law right now? No, but nobody looks back at, at, at Genesis 3 and goes, oh, this is pointless information. Right? Like, ah, oh, why do I even need to know about that law? That has no relevance for me. No, this, this has e- eternal relevance for you. You want to know where your sin came from? Then you need to understand this first law, right? So law, um, just because we are not under the same command and force of the law, doesn't mean that it's not valuable and meaningful to you as a New Testament Christian, right? So you wouldn't do that with the original law in the Garden of Eden. You don't need to do that with the Mosaic law either. Well, I, I, I don't need to know um, how many turtle doves I need to offer to make up for my uncleanness. Therefore, it doesn't matter. No, this law is good and holy and righteous, and you can see the character of God in it. And so um, it, it, does, it does matter, okay? Um, uh, couple last random thoughts. Um, was it wrong to murder before the Mosaic law? Speaking of going, going back to Genesis, right? Um, was it wrong? When Cain killed Abel, was that wrong? Did the Mosaic law exist when Cain killed Abel? No, right? Did, did Cain violate the Mosaic law? And the answer is no, there was no Mosaic law. He wasn't under Mosaic law. Did Cain sin against the holy and righteous God? And the answer is yes, okay? Is murder still sin today? Yes. Is it because we're under Mosaic law? I would say no. It's not because we're under Mosaic law, right? 
uh, we're underneath a law that says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, we have a new covenant law within our hearts that we know that's wrong, right? So um, it, it was murder before there was a Ten Commandments. We see God's heart within the Ten Commandments. That um, what, where else do we where else do we see in our Bibles that it's wrong to murder? Before there ever was a Mosaic law. What about when Noah gets off the ark, right? Is there is there a Mosaic law when Noah gets off the ark? No, but what does God tell him? He says, whoever sheds man's blood, what? By man shall his blood be shed, all right? We're talking about the character of God and how we relate to other people. Um, murder has been wrong and, it, and it'll always be wrong. Um, I'm just trying to help us think that murder is not wrong today because Mosaic law says it's not wrong. Murder is wrong uh, because it violates the character of God, the image of God that is in man. It violates these eternal principles and not a time-based law code, okay? So if you said, the Ten Commandments say that shall not murder, therefore you, you should not murder. Would I, would I agree? I would agree that you should not murder. Uh, I, I just think it's based on something more permanent than just this temporary law code. I'm just using that as an example to try to help us as, as you think about how we relate to the law um, when you think about the character of God that is, that is there. Okay, so I want to encourage you to go ahead and, and eat pork and plant fields with a variety of crops. Go ahead and get your tattoos. No, I don't know about that one. Maybe, maybe think about that one for other reasons, but, but don't do it just because the law said you shouldn't do it, right? There's other reasons for us to think through why we do what we do and why we don't do what we do, okay? Um, all right. Uh, when good Christian people disagree on an issue, there's, there's usually a reason. So I understand that even the things that I've said, it's not as if I have an open and shut airtight, well, obviously everyone should agree with Demo because I, I said it. No, lots of good Christian people would disagree with how I've said what I've said. And, and what I've said. Uh, and it would even be fine for you to be in, in, in that camp. You just need to know why you're convinced what you're convinced is true. Um, and again, make it an exegetical, like figure out how you're going to reconcile what Paul says about the law, what Hebrew says about the law. Um, how are you going to, to understand it? Um, I realize there's other ways to say um, what I've said, um, but I'm convinced and I hope you'll consider whether you are or not. Okay. Regardless, uh, even as, as uh, Scott began the class talking about the three different ways to break the law into categories, um, I hope my application principles would apply regardless, right? Because even if you want to break the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial, you still have to figure out how to apply the civil and ceremonial, right? Like that, it didn't go away. It's still there in the Bible. So you can still look for the character of God. You can still, um, you can still ask, how does this point to Christ? Regardless of how you want to try to break the law up, you still have to reconcile. There's a bunch of laws that you're not doing. So what, how are you going to get something meaningful out of that? Okay? The character of God pointing to Christ, um, these are ways that all of the, regardless of how you look at the law, it has meaning. Okay? All right. That's it. I'm done. Questions? Here we go. Yes, Rod. Comment. Yes. Ephesians. Okay. In chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So definitely talking about Christ, the law of Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ is in us and he brings us that sanctification. Right. Uh, as, as it just comes from each of us, I think. I mean, that's what I'm yeah, like I said, there um, we have the Spirit within us. Um, that's part of the New Covenant promise, right? That He would write His law in our hearts, um, and that that law, that understanding, the Spirit speaks through His Word. And we have tons of commands in our New Testament that are directly like, "Thou shalt do this," right? Plus all of the learning of who God is in the Old Testament helps you understand, even if you don't have a direct thou shalt not do this, there are principles that are found all throughout our Old Testaments that the Spirit applies to our hearts that we go, oh, I, I, I understand justice, right? The Old Testament law, may, maybe it had something that was Jewish specific about justice in the Old Testament, but you should know that God loves justice, right? God hates oppression. So 
you start making application in New Testament Christianity today because the Spirit is in your hearts because you're living out Christ and now you make application, right? But that's not going to look the same as it did to a Jewish person several thousand years ago. Okay, Adrian. Uh, no, I did not say that. So thank you for asking. I believe the opposite of that. So there is a future for national Israel. Absolutely. So um, we get to be grafted into the promises of Israel, not the other way around. Right? So we get to partake in their blessings. Um, but no, we do not replace Israel. That also makes me a dispensationalist. So, yeah, Scott. So based on your opinion, do you think we should use the Ten Commandments for evangelism? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think that uh, you should, uh, as long as you're able to explain, um, these are commands that you could never keep, but Jesus did, right? So you can never keep all of these, you can never keep all of these commandments. Um, but if an educated person, if you, if you bring up the Ten Commandments and an educated person says, okay, well, why aren't you keeping the Sabbath in the same way the Jewish people did? Now you're going to have to explain somehow that you're not a Sabbath keeper. And so I, you, you can do that, and it's not, that's not a problem. I think the, the Ten Commandments are a, are a useful summary, right? They're like a summary statement of, of, of Mosaic law. Um, so telling somebody you should not, you know, you shall not murder, you shall have no other gods, and we make other gods all the time. Um, could you do that? Yeah, you could. Um, if you get in a conversation with an educated person, though, and they say, okay, but the Ten Commandments are only part of the Mosaic Law, and you're eating shellfish, and you're saying that homosexuality is wrong, what's the difference? Well, you're going to have to do a lot more explaining than just, well, the Mosaic Law said so. You know what I'm saying? So, um, as a summary statement, um, yes, I think they point to things that, um, that no person is able to keep, and the New Testament reaffirms not nine of those ten. So, yes, it's a helpful summary. Um, but... Did, should you tell somebody, because you've broken the Ten Commandments, that's why you're not going to heaven? I think the Ten Commandments stand as, um, as a reminder of how we rebel against God's... God presents a system to us, and we say we don't want that. Um, but is someone going to hell for breaking the Mosaic Law? And the answer is no. They're going to hell for breaking God's law. So, saying, you're asking for it, potentially, uh, by using the Ten Commandments in evangelism. It's my opinion. So I, I would use the Ten Commandments in evangelism. It's just that when I said, thou shalt not murder, you know, shalt not steal, I would say, these are commandments that God gave in the Old Testament that no one was able to keep, and you couldn't keep either. If you were still underneath these commands, you would, you would disobey them. In fact, you do disobey these kind of commands. That's how I would explain it. Yep. Okay, Lisa. Um, someone might say this will help my little brain to understand about Romans 7. So the law is diagnostic, but not curative. Yeah. I thought, okay, so it's kind of like by testing, tells you you've got cancer. Yeah, but it, but it doesn't. Not do anything to help right. You get rid of it. That's right. So, I don't know. That was helpful. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Which is the same thing to kind of connect that back to Scott's question. If you're evangelizing, you certainly couldn't stop with the Ten Commandments, right? the Ten Commandments don't fix the heart problem. They might, they might reveal it, but now you, you've got to have a solution. If you're evangelizing, you've got to bring a solution, and Christ is the solution. Um, so, yeah, it's good. Tom. What do we say, or what do you say about the centuries of men and women, and how we, we look at, at uh, the law historically, and these hundreds of years that, that went by under the law, and then the time before the Mosaic Law? How do we, how do we, how do we Yeah, yeah. Um, God has been in the process of progressively re um, revealing further and further truth uh, throughout time, and yet he has, always, um, he has always revealed enough truth for the people of that generation, right? So um, 
He provided a way of escape and a way, I think, even of rescue for Adam and Eve back when there was no 66 books of, of the Bible. He always has provided enough revelation. H- how, how we think about all of his other generations, I think we should be incredibly thankful that we live in a day of a completed, uh, a completed Bible because you get the whole picture. You've got 66 books that give you the entire picture and lots of other generations didn't get the entire picture. So really it's a marvel when you see what God has done in people's hearts who had much less of the picture than you do and yet who still were completely confident that only the Messiah could save them, right? So you have all these Old Testament Jews and even pre-Mosaic law, you have all these people that they were, they were confident that they needed a rescuer, right? And they were looking for the promise of Genesis 3, the one who would come to crush the, the serpent, right? So um, it's amazing to see the faith of people like Abraham and David and Noah and all of these other men who had much less revelation than you and I do um, and yet fully believe the promises of God. So, Heidi. Right. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question, and I think my initial response would be um, that um, I mean part of part of the work of the Messiah was to take our sins and our sicknesses, right? So what the suffering servant did and and taking all those on himself. Um, but how could Christ do that without um, becoming becoming unclean? I think is connected to the mystery of the incarnation that he is both God and man. So was Jesus perpetually unclean all throughout his ministry? And I'd say no, yeah. right? Um, was, was Jesus, Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. So when he did things that were not Sabbath keeping, why was that, why was that not wrong? Because he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's the ruler of it. So in, in that sense, it's, it's not the same. So uh, that's a good question. Um, but was Jesus chronically offering sacrifices because he was always healing people and touching them? I'd say no. Um, not that not that I know of, but yeah. because he didn't become unclean because there he's different roles for um, performing miracles, you know, like because I know there was like you know he would say go show yourself to the priest and he right. that, but you know. But the so the priests were in contact with un I mean that's an interesting question because the priests were in contact with uncleanness all the time yeah. uh, as well. So maybe the answer is found in that as well, that part of the priestly duty was to be around unclean, but okay. that's a good question that I probably don't have a full answer for. Okay? All right. God's law, God's Mosaic law is good and it's holy and it's righteous. And Christ fulfilled it and you are no longer bound by it. And yet it is profitable and it is necessary for you to understand who God is. Uh, and it is, it is profitable for doctrine and correction and reproof and instruction in righteousness. Okay? So keep studying it. Keep thinking about it. Good news, Scott. You can keep teaching in Exodus. It's still in the Bible. All right. Okay, let's pray.